Hello everyone, I am uh, with uh, Troy Ada, a professor at Lehigh University, and uh, we're going to have a very interesting conversation about the future of data and the sheer amount of it and how to analyze it. And uh, in the process, we'll uh, explore items such as parallelization, Moore's laws, and how students can actually take advantage of uh, what's happening out there. So, uh, Joy, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> what's going on out there with the data? Well, um, what we're seeing now is we've had decades at this point of growth in data. And, you know, there's lots of um, anecdotal stories out there. For instance, uh, Twitter has provided its data to the Library of Congress, um, and it was several years ago. But to this date, they still haven't got a search engine that they can make available to everybody to search for that data because the data is accumulating faster than processing power is growing. And um, this is because of the death of Moore's Law. So Moore's Law, for the longest time, let me, let me talk about what it basically says. Um, back in the 60s, uh, this guy named Moore came up with a law that said every about two years, the amount of transistors on a chip are going to double. And for the longest time, that meant that the amount of processing power was going to double. Speeds would go up at, at increasing rates and so forth. But about uh, 15 years ago, that started to plateau. And it started to plateau for a couple of reasons. One of them is um, as you double the amount of transistors on a chip, the heat buildup gets bigger and bigger. And so there's a, an upper limit that you can reach. And if you think about it, if you think about laptops that you've had or that your parents have had, laptops and desktop computers, for that matter, really haven't gotten all that much faster in the past 10 years. They were running around 4 gigahertz at peak speeds 10 years ago, and they just now went over 5 gigahertz. So for the longest time, we were used to about a 60% increase in computer speed every single year. And then 10 years ago, that started to flatten out. So now we're getting maybe a 5 to 10% increase in computer speed every year. So if you're getting exponentially more data, but your computer speed is not going up at anywhere close to an exponential rate, you're going to have trouble handling it. We're, we're drowning in a sea of data, I guess is the best way to say it. Now, there's a couple of ways you could deal with that. One is you can try to cryogenically cool computers and see if you can deal with the heat other ways and make them go faster. And, you know, there's been stories in the press. I think about a year ago, uh, Intel rolled out a new chip, and um, it came out after they did the demo that there was a refrigerator-sized cooling unit uh, underneath the desk that was cooling this thing, allowing them to break through the, at the time, 5 gigahertz barrier. Um, Yes, you can do that, but to be honest, it's only going to give you limited uh, additional advantages in terms of speed. So we, we can't keep trying to eke speed out. It's like, you know, getting the proverbial uh, blood out of a turnip or whatever. It just ain't going to work. So it looks like that the answer to this um, is going to be parallel processing. That is, trying to take problems and chop them up into parts and then take a multi-core computer or a multi-core chip and sort of divvy the parts out, have all the different cores work on that problem together, doing like one nth of the problem. And then they bring their answers back at the end and combine them all and get the overall answer. Now, um, one of the things I see in terms of a coming wave of changes to software, the software that we're using in business right now, doesn't matter if you're talking about Excel, if you're talking about even statistics programs, for the most part, they were built on this idea that things would get faster and faster and faster, and they depended upon that. Um, scientific computing software 
over the past five years has realized computers ain't getting quicker. So they've switched over to this idea of parallel processing. But we haven't seen something equivalent in business software. For instance, um, SAP and their enterprise resource planning software. They're trying to eke out a little bit more speed by moving processing up into memory, off of disk. Um, that's what the new S4 HANA system is all about. Other types of um, large enterprise scale software are doing the same thing. But they're all starting to recognize that they really need to look at this whole idea of taking problems and breaking them up into multiple parts. So there's a couple of things that students need to be aware of and a couple of sort of areas of opportunity for students in that. First of all, not all problems are equally sort of breakable into parts. Let me give you a couple of examples of what a, a good problem and what a bad problem for multi-core processing would be. First of all, let's suppose that you've got a million numbers and you want to find the average. Now, every one of us, if we've taken a basic stats course, knows that in the numerator, we're going to take those million numbers and add them up, and then we're going to divide by the number of, of numbers to get the average. Well, that's a good, highly scalable, highly paralyzable problem, because what you can do if you've got, say, 10 cores, you break the million numbers into 10 groups of 100,000 each. You have each of the cores add up their subset of 100,000 numbers. And then at the end, they each take their average and they take sort of a weighted average. I did one-tenth of them and my average was this. I did one-tenth of them and my average was that. They get all that stuff together. Now, there's a little bit of overhead there, but not a lot of, lot of overhead. You wind up basically having to add, think of it as if you've got 10 cores, you've got a uh, million numbers you've got to add, and then there's a set of getting stuff together that's going to be another 10 addition. So it's a very small amount of overhead for the amount of, of, of uh, uplift you get from breaking things into multiple parts. So that's a, an example of a good paralyzable problem. An example of a bad paralyzable problem would be something like, well, you know, the old um, story about let's suppose that you're a mile away from your destination, and every hour you're going to get halfway to your destination. Well, so you go half an hour, or excuse me, half a mile the first hour, and then you go, you got a half mile left, so you go a quarter mile, then you go an eighth mile, and so forth. That kind of problem isn't parallelizable. You can't break it up into parts, because for instance, even if you tried to break it into two halves, you don't know what the starting uh, part that you have to have for the latter half is until you finish the first half of your million calculations or something along those lines. So one thing that will put students in sort of a, a good position is if they start thinking about and, and, and sort of just investigating this idea of what types of problems can be handled by parallel processing and what kinds can't. Now, if you think about the types of, of terms that are being thrown around with data science in the news now, um, artificial intelligence, uh, natural language processing, um, those kinds of problems are subject to vast improvements by using parallel processing. Um, other types of problems, not so easily paralyzable. So if you do your research and, and you read through the large weighty terms that they're using to describe these things, it basically breaks down into a question of, is this a type of problem that can be done in parts, where the parts are independent of one another, or is it the type of problem where you really need more speed in order to be able to do it? Now, what I think is going to happen over the next few years is that we'll start to see this idea of parallel processing work its way into sort of everyday business software. I think programs like Excel, I think programs like PowerPoint even to some extent, um, we've already seen it start to encroach on the more technologically sophisticated programs such as um, video rendering 
such as um, figuring out ways to convert uh, problems with uh, like providing a chat bot. Instead of a human sitting there at a call center, you have a chat bot. So when somebody calls into their bank, the first level of interaction they have is with a artificial intelligence, basically, that um, hits against a number of parallel sort of data structures to determine how to respond when somebody asks them a question, to process the person's language, to uh, read through the person's accent if they have any, and then to get at the basic fundamental question that the person's asking, you can parallelize those problems and break them into chunks. Does that make sense? Uh, so I, I think that's the general tenor of the direction we're moving. Okay, in. so there's a lot of things in there. Uh, the first uh, the first thing that you mentioned had to do with Excel mm -hmm. and uh, the fact that uh, you're starting to already have uh, scientific computing. They, they have, they, I guess, their own software because they're probably more advanced than, than the rest of the population. But if you're a student right now and you're looking at Excel and you're looking at, as you mentioned, even PowerPoint, I think um, they... they how do they go about um, looking at it differently, right? Because right now they, they I, I've got a couple of courses, uh, a couple of um, uh, projects in, in, uh, in my uh, financial engineering class, and they're basically looking to look for falling knives and looking for uh, what are some of the best stocks. And you know, so they'll go in and they'll do some, some sort of regression. But you seem to be indicating that, that for, the, for the regular uh, business student, what, you're not going to be using Excel the way you used to use it, or you have to look at it differently, or is it that the program itself is going to look different? Well, I, I think the answer to that is all of the above, and let me explain. First of all, when you think about the way Excel works, an Excel spreadsheet in and of itself isn't really all that parallelizable because the way that you connect one cell to another, like this, let's suppose the, the cell at the bottom of an income statement, it's pointing back upstream to all of the parts of that income statement. And then downstream from net income for that year, you've got other calculations, maybe ratios or something that you're creating out of them. So the point is, that's exactly the same problem as I'm walking half the distance each, each time I take a step, right? Um, it's not really one that can be broken into multiple parallel chunks that can be worked together. You don't know what's in cell, I'm going to make something up here, Z73 until you do cell Q17, which you don't get until you do cells A1, A2, A3, and so forth. So I guess the, the simple answer to the question is, um, unless they radically change the way Excel and other standard business software works, it's not going to be able to handle those types of problems. I don't see any way, right? The old um, story about the guy who's wading through lots of reams of spreadsheets trying to pick that one best stock, that's set in the 80s or the 90s. And the idea is that, you know, there's a manageable number of stocks for them to look at. And as long as they stay late at the office, everybody else has gone home. They've got this little... Uh, desk lamp over them, you know, there's name the movie from the 80s that deals with stockbrokers, and that's how the guy succeeds or the gal succeeds. But the point is, is that the number of stocks and the tempo of the market is such that if anybody tried to really do that today, to be quite honest, they'd either have to have millions of different Excel worksheets and go through them all, and they can't possibly do that fast enough to stay on top of what's going on, 
or they have to find another software package for doing it. So I think one of the, the things, and maybe I, I, I a little bit misspoke before, in the long term or in the medium term, do I think that Microsoft and other business software providers are going to start folding parallelism in? Yes. But I think it'll probably be an add-in, and it'll only apply to certain parts of things like Excel. In the short term, I think our business students are going to have to accept that they need to basically learn a different set of tools, maybe programs like Python or R or something, or MATLAB, something along those lines, that will be able to do that type of parallel processing. So if they set up these are the ratios I'm looking at. You know, right now it's very simple. You can get packages that will take all the financial statements for a particular firm out of Google Finance and load it into R. You can then automatically evaluate a set of different ratios, and you can rank them, right? So I'm a, I'm a stock analyst, and I'm deciding this ratio is important, that ratio is important, but the first one's more important, so I'll get a heavy... So you come up with your own weighting scheme. Well... If you do all of this in a parallelizable program in R or script, then you can set it up so that you're downloading hundreds or thousands of different sets of financial information at the same time. And then your cores, either on your local machine or in the cloud, where you spread it across multiple physical machines into one humongous virtual machine, can be processing through each of those stocks individually. And then at the end, you can have a summary statement that says, so based upon the parameters that you chose, it's these. You can automate that process. You can speed that process up through parallel processing by using languages that have packages or functions that are already designed to parallel process your problems. Existing business software, conventional business software like Excel, simply mm -hmm. cannot do that for you. So, um, Let's 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 get into the the, the meat with the um, the stock selection. So, uh, when you said that the students will select the criteria and then the you'll have the parallel processing going on, when machine learning comes in is really uh, because basically I'm trying to get to the point where students are going to need to think differently about lots of different things, and and obviously for this you're saying uh, parallel processing. I'm also thinking that in terms of machine learning, in terms of selecting what the rules, the best rules are, because right now they all assume to be, okay, let's, let's be very clear. For example, mm -hmm. uh, right now uh, on one of the projects, they're thinking, well, we need to look at obviously financial ratios. We need to look at what's going on with the government, uh, you know, what's going on in the economy. This is the typical things. But maybe stocks behave independently of these things. That's why it's so hard to, to qualify them. And, and student needs to learn to understand machine learning so that they could find out what are the rules that are actually working. You know, machine learning, we did a podcast on that, but essentially it's a little bit of a, like a, a more fancy word for, for regression. But so here are the new students for the coming years. First, they need to understand what machine learning is. Now you're telling them, well, guess what? Excel is okay, but you need to understand Python. Or you need to get really familiar because the tools are going to be more complicated uh, going forward, and then uh, to make matters worse or, or better for them, more challenging, is the fact that the entire financial system now is being, uh, you know, people are, are talking about Libra, people are talking about the blockchain, so even the financial mm -hmm. system itself is getting more complicated, is getting more complicated <laughs> and could actually be on the, on the verge of changing. So I think there's there's three levels there. What I was just describing and what you were talking about first is the idea that you need to sort of 
at one level, be able to lay out the framework for your problem in a manner so as to make it programmatic and make it automizable. I don't even know if that's a word, but parallelizable, right? And then what you mentioned and what I will further support is that, well, it's one thing if you're going to do that once, right? Or if you're going to set up a program that here's the rules, they're set in stone, and I'm going to fire this parallelized program at them and have it go through lots of different stocks and do exactly the same evaluation. But things changed, right? The, the importance of different ratios or the relationships between variables and how that drives what's a good stock to invest in and what's not a good stock will change over time. And it's a whole sort of higher level of necessary reasoning to realize that I not only need to make it automizable, I also need to make sort of the, I need to be able to depict what the framework for deciding what the ratios to use and the weights to use is and back it up to a level where the computer through artificial intelligence will detect when there's a systematic change in the framework describing what's a good stock to invest in. So the def if the definition of a good stock changes, you need a computer, and that's what artificial intelligence will do for us. It basically, you have to learn how to, to tell it how to think like you think. So if it can go through and process and see, hey, the relationship between this ratio and whether it's a good or a bad stock to invest in has changed. And now this new value is important. You need something that can pick that up on the fly for you and then start doing that across multiple stocks. So really your job is the third level that you were talking about, which is figure out not just what ratios, but what numbers, what metrics are going to be important. You know, if you went back 20 years ago and you started talking about if I wanted to predict stock prices, what uh, uh, types of variables would I look at? You would talk about the financial statements. You would talk about sales figures. Nobody would have said a word about, I don't know, what's the, the number of visitors to their webpage? Or what's the um, ratio of purchases versus landings on a website for an uh, online retailer? Um, so those variables, which nowadays, if you if you had inside information or if you had some insight, that is, into what the values of those particular parameters would be on a stock, that would guide you in terms of is this a good stock or not a good stock. Um, so the point is, is, is new variables, new information systems arise, and those information systems have new and novel metrics that can be used to measure viability of a stock, viability of a business process, viability of the earnings flow of a particular company. How are you going to find that? That's your job. That's that's the job of the student is to basically realize their world is always going to be changing. And they've got to identify what matters, what could potentially matter, to learn to feed it into an artificial intelligence model, which in turn will determine what the optimal weighting parameters are to apply across a slew of stocks using a parallelizable format. So, so there's two challenges. Obviously, there's a challenge with the students, which now needs to think in three dimension whenever thinking with these type of situations. I like the idea of, uh, you know, you're looking at a stock and, and or a company, and we're mostly thinking financial. We say, no, go on their website, or even forget their website. Go go on the web and see what's being discussed about this company What what and, and how that actually impacts the, um, uh, the stock. But I think for educators as well, Right. If you're going to be teaching about security analysis, you've got to get away from the financial statements now. You have to somehow incorporate 
other elements that they will need to uh, to look at, right? Yeah, well, I think, you know, part of the problem is going to be chicken or the egg. Um, it used to be that we said, well, they need a good founding in algebra and a little bit of calculus in order to be a good finance student. Nowadays, you need a good founding in algebra, a little bit of calculus, and you need some programming expertise because we need to... It's not so much that we want to teach you to do the mechanics. You need to know how to do the mechanics in order you, so you can step back and look at the big picture. If getting the big picture involves being able to pick up quickly on the fly when what parameters matter changes, um, you need more stuff. And I'm not sure, you know, I know what we're doing here at Lehigh is that we're having all the students, all the incoming freshmen, take a intro to analytics course. And we're hoping that that will help them prepare them for that material. But it also means that as educators, we have to think about, okay, so how are they going to use that? How are they going to use what they learned in the intro to our course, basically, which is what our business analytics one course is. How are they going to use that in the intro to finance and the intro to marketing and the intro to, you know, operations management, you name it. Um, that's, that's going to be an interesting question. <laughs> and even more interesting is that if they succeed and if we succeed, and they get prepared and they do exactly the way they're supposed to be doing, other people are going to be doing it too. And then, so what happens? So now, if there's a race to the top, now we're going a lot faster, right? Because now you, everybody's doing is parallel processing, everybody's doing uh, machine learning. So then, then what happens after that? Well, I think the answer is that the pace of technological change is a lot different nowadays than it used to be. 30 or 40 years ago, right? Think about the history of business schools. Business schools basically got started back in the 60s and during the and mostly in, in the Western economies, the, the developed nations as they were called at the time. Um, they basically arose, undergraduate business programs and MBA programs, arose in an environment post-World War II where the developed nations basically were selling into a seller's market. Um, they had most of the manufacturing expertise. They had a lot of the business expertise. And if you learned how to be a businessman going to business school back in the 60s and even into the 70s, um, it was pretty darn easy. It was about meeting demand. It wasn't going out and, you know, beating the bushes to find demand or competing because there wasn't a lot of competition in, in most markets, to be honest. So because of that, things were fairly static and stable. What what being a business student or being a graduate student with an MBA meant, meant the same thing for about 20, 25 years. Nowadays, I think it's not only enough to say that you're going to have to learn these tools in order to make it to your undergrad and be competitive when you graduate. I think you also have to realize that you're going to have to retool yourself, right? Just over the course of the past 10 years, you know, take myself as an example. My PhD is in finance. I happen to run a, a data science department for a, a large university, and I sort of bootstrapped myself up into becoming a data scientist. I taught myself R, I taught myself parallel programming. And I had an advantage in that at heart I'm a geek, and I, you know, I know about gaming, and it, it turns out that the stuff that you use in gaming for video processing is the same stuff that you can leverage to use in parallel processing for doing artificial intelligence and natural language processing and so forth. But at the heart of it, I think students have to realize they need to learn a new set of tools to be successful when they enter the job marketplace, but they're also going to have to continue to learn throughout their career. 
And I think there's going to be that expectation. You're right. Is is yes, everybody starts doing artificial intelligence. Everybody starts doing parallel processing and and implements that into their workflow. What's the next big thing? I don't know. If I knew that, then maybe we'd all be a heck of a lot richer. But I do know that there will be some next new thing. And when that next new thing gets here, you have to – I'm not saying jump on every bandwagon or or every new fad. Um, But after a while, you sort of get an idea of what isn't a fad and what's going to stick around. You know, R is an example. Python, the use of natural language processing, artificial intelligence, the whole idea of in-memory processing and and columnar uh, calculation, as SAP and other programs uh, call it, those things are sticking around because there's a, an underlying pervasive business need that says, hey, we can't make computers faster, so how can we either make accessing the uh, data from memory storage faster or how can we make it so that we can break the problem into chunks? And I think for all of those things, we've come up with solutions to those problems that are going to be here for a while. I don't know what the next set of problems are going to be, and therefore I don't know what the next set of solutions are. But I can almost guarantee that if we have this discussion again 10 years from now, the next up-and-coming wave of inevitable technological innovation is going to be there. And and our students that are entering or in the middle of or graduating from an undergraduate business program will find themselves thinking about, hey, maybe I need to learn some new tools 10 years, 15, 20 years down the road. So uh, I, I like the idea that uh, you say you, you, you retooled yourself completely into a data scientist. I myself didn't know anything about uh, machine learning a year ago. Uh, and I think what we need to tell the student or teacher students, uh, in addition to what what's in the books, is the fact that they need to become problem solvers. So they need to be able to adapt. And them, more than us, is I think that the adaptation period is going to be a lot faster because, uh, you know, on, on one end, you know, you're thinking about blockchain and the, the whole financial system, which is getting into uh, a change of its own, and then you're talking about data that's changing. I mean, even in the day-to-day lives, right, think about the fact that soon, you know, according to Elon Musk, in five to ten years, you know, we're not going to be driving cars anymore. They're going to be driving themselves, which is kind of funny if you think about it, but that means that, for example, you might not need a garage anymore, right? That car is going to be parked 10 mm-hmm. miles away, so your car, your house is going to change. So. I guess the, 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 the matches of this podcast, and, and, and we'll do others more details in terms of each, uh, you know, so each principle, not to make it too complicated, but is that we need to start to adapt and become problem solvers. And we need to teach them also how to become a problem solver because I think that, you know, going forward for them, they'll, they'll, when they get, get out and, and, and look for jobs, um, the jobs are going to change so quickly that, uh, for example, I mean, uh, the, the same way I'm saying they won't be driving a car, maybe there, are no, there won't be a need for banks anymore. Maybe because of the fact that, you know, with blockchain, it's, uh, they, they don't need intermediaries anymore. So, may, so, so things are going to be changing quickly. And uh, it's a good thing, actually, because you're going to be able to be more productive. But um, I think the lesson is uh, you have to change. Yeah. I think you not only have to change, but you also... You know, if you think about it, and and even for our undergraduate students, think back through your lifetime. Think about things that everybody knew was dying or, or, or business models that just weren't viable and companies that stuck that out too long, right? So think about companies that, for instance, made CDs 
and the fact that uh, for the longest time, Target and Walmart and all those big box retailers continued to stock a, a sizable number of CDs. It's only the last year or two that they've started to really cut back on those things. Well, everybody out there for the last 10 years has realized that streaming music is probably where it's going and that people don't want to buy CDs. There's no reason to pay for it. Why? Because you have to delay going down to the store to get the CD. It costs money. Um, you don't want to carry a CD around with you. You've got your your phone and you can listen to it through that. But think about how long the companies that made CDs, the companies that sold CDs, and replace your outdated technological item of choice, right? You could say DVDs uh, for uh, even for Redbox and companies like that. We know that's a dying market. Uh, but you're right. Banks, to some extent, they're also a dying market. A lot of the reasons that we go to banks nowadays are convenience, right? And I'll be honest, it's 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 not as popular to go to a bank amongst younger people as it is older people. I, I, I remember telling, I don't know if it was a student or one of my uh, kids' friends, but about the fact that I had to go down to make a deposit. And they just looked at me so weird. And they're like, why don't you just snappy it on your phone and send, send it in? Why, why do you actually have to physically go visit the bank? And I'm like, well, unfortunately for that bank, you're right. But maybe I need to get a new bank account and a new bank that doesn't do that. But that's the point. you know. And I know I'm using sort of outdated um, analogies here. But you know, look around and, and see you're exactly right in terms of self-driving vehicles. Students need to be thinking, and I'm not saying that you need to be paranoid and, and, and you know, always overthinking every single part of your life. But, you know, think ahead to what that implies in terms of will you own a car 10 years from now? Um, how will your, your goods be delivered 10 years from now? Um, are they going to be something that you go down to the store and buy, or are you going to order them online and they'll be delivered via automated uh, truck to a local distribution center and then sent out by a panel truck that's driven by an AI also, right? So how is that going to change your life? How's that going to change your ordering habits? And then amplify that to the entire populace and ask, what does that mean for new business opportunities? What does that mean for existing business entities in terms of their viability? Correct. So um, let's um, let's end it here um, before we um, we uh, extend our welcome uh, and let's uh, reconvene uh, on each of these topics on more detailed podcasts so we could uh, take them apart a little bit more you know a little bit of history on on some of the things that you mentioned and and then as um, events occur in real life uh we'll 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 go over those as well so i want to thank you very much troy my pleasure 